Thank you, Nathan. You know, I really appreciate the fact that we have so many humble musicians at our church who will lead us in worship without drawing attention to themselves and, and doing it faithfully. And Nathan and Charlie are wonderful examples of that. And I'm, I'm really thankful uh, for both of them. And uh, I know that we as a church are all thankful for you. So thank, thank you, Nathan. Thank you for serving and leading our church uh, in, <laughs> in so many different ways. It's so funny to me watching Nathan change instruments and he'll sing here, he'll do an offering here and just take out the trash. So I'm really thankful. Colossians chapter 3. You're already there, I can tell. Colossians chapter 3. All right, so may offend some of you, but I'm not a fan of the mall. Any folks in here despise the mall? Ooh, yeah, lots. I didn't see Luke Denton raise his hand. That doesn't surprise me. It's a place designed for my shopping comfort, yet if I go there, I'm totally uncomfort, uncomfortable, right? I cannot stand the manipulative sales and the marketing gimmicks, the overpriced drink machines, right? I really don't like how they pump, uh, what is it, like cologne or like fragrances, like out of every vent that there is that you walk through and you got to hold your nose, right? Not a fan of that. Um, and... And I don't know if I like this or don't like this, how you walk through the food court and there's some small man that shoves a toothpick down your throat with like chicken on it. Sometimes I like that, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's a little overwhelming. It all makes me feel uncomfortable. But I always do get a kick out of walking by the kiosk workers, right? That's what we call, that's what they call those middle things, right? The, the kiosk workers, you know, the, the phone case kiosk worker who ironically hasn't looked up from her phone in days, you know, you've seen her, uh, or the guy selling helicopters who's watching Netflix with his headphones on, won't even look at you, right? The, and, but, so there's those people, but then there's also like the kiosk sharks, have you, oh, yeah. You know, you know what I'm talking about? When you walk by and you're like, no eye contact, no eye contact, no eye contact, right? Uh, where, where if you make eye contact, right, if you're like a rookie mall goer, right, and you make eye contact with the kiosk shark, suddenly someone has convinced you that you need a foot massage, right? Or uh, that you need to buy a walk-in bathtub or whatever it is they're selling, right? And that's the golden rule, right? If you're new to the mall, don't make eye contact with the kiosk shark sharks because suddenly you'll be learning about how your iPhone isn't waterproof enough or, or, uh, or some middle-aged man with incredibly soft skin has convinced you to buy Israeli moisturizer. Anybody bought any Israeli moisturizer? Yeah, I think there's a few guilty folks. In there. You don't have this. Okay, right? But as you walk by, you can tell if you dare to look, right? If you do this number, you can tell the folks that are on commission and the folks that are not on commission, right? It's pretty clear. The sharks, they are on commission. They are, they're motivated. The guy on his headphones watching Netflix, he is on an hourly wage, right? The hand cream guy who jumps out from behind a bush with a free sample, he is on commission, right? And the difference is it's a matter of motivation. It's a matter of incentivizing, right? And, oh, I missed a page of notes, right? It's, uh, it's a matter of incentive. And, and for us in the Christian life, motivation is, is crucial. 
And it's not simply a, a matter of whether or not we're motivated to obey God or to please God, but it's a matter of why and how we're motivated to obey God. We talk about this quite a bit. But do you remember how Jesus interacted with the religious elite, right? He gave these scathing critiques, and it was always, or it was often, about their motivation, right? The reason that they were obeying, right? This is my favorite one. It makes me tremble. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness, right? On the outside, you're whitewashed, but you're just full of deadness. We talk all the time about how God is not concerned only with our behavior. That's a form of legalism, a a version of religion that we must put away. But he's concerned with what's going on in our hearts. He's concerned with our motives, Over the last several weeks, months perhaps, we have been doing a deep dive, an in-depth look at how people who have been raised with Christ, as Paul says in Colossians 3, that we have been raised up to a whole new life. That we died to an old life and we've been raised up to a new life. So there's things of our old life that we have put to death. We leave in our old life. And then there's new things that we are to walk in, right? We're to put off, as the language he uses, all, like, like we would put off dirty clothing. We are to put off behavior that's not appropriate for this new life. And so far, we have focused on the negative part of our ethical responsibility, the do nots, right? Not an exhaustive list, but some of them, specifically the importance of avoiding sexual immorality or covetousness and and anger and lying, to name a few. But now, starting in verse 12, Paul is turning to the positive expressions of Christian behavior, compassion, forgiveness, love, just to mention a few. But before he does that, here in verse 12, he has one little clause that he works to remind readers of the importance of having the right motivation. And if you're not careful, you may miss it because it's only a few words, right? You can fly right by it and and miss it. And so we are going to look at just this one phrase tonight here in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. We've talked quite a bit about the put on, put off dynamic. We'll continue to talk about that. But we're going to focus our attention on these words here in in verse 12. So let's go ahead and read this. And and I'm going to read this whole section, 12 through 17. Uh, And as you're listening, see if you can pick up on motives, motivation for Christian obedience. Okay, so let's read verse 12. And that's where our focus will be. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the rule, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray and ask for God to help us as we consider this and learn to obey in this manner. Father, you know all the needs that we bring into this room, and so we ask that you would now meet them. Father, I pray that you would empower the preaching of your word and that you would enable us as we listen and as we seek to obey. Lord, I pray that you would cement in our hearts how we as Christians can be completely forgiven, and yet you call us to fight sin and to put on obedience. Help us each to grow more passionate about holiness tonight. Father, I pray that to this end, that you would let my words fall to the ground and blow away like leaves, and let your word remain heavy in our hearts, bearing much fruit to your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. So as I said, we're going to focus our attention only tonight on the first half of verse 12. Here Paul begins, and so that's the phrase, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Here Paul begins with a soothing description of our lives and our identity as believers. And it comes right before, I don't know if you noticed it, right? This string of commands. Do this, 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 right? And we've just heard a bunch of do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. Right in the middle, Paul soothes us with a reminder of our identity. The identity for those who follow Christ and have placed faith in Christ and have been supernaturally reborn. We see here three descriptions. Three descriptions of the privileges that we enjoy in Christ. We're, We're called God's chosen ones. We're called holy. We're called beloved. And we're going to look at each of these in turn. But first, I want to think a little bit about how God intends to motivate us by His grace. And that's the main idea, I believe, for us tonight, that God's grace motivates us to obey. God's grace motivates us to obey. So let's take a look at this question of motivation before the privileges. Remember, we're in the portion of Colossians where Paul has moved from our identity with Christ to how that affects how we live. And we've just gone, we've just gotten done looking at the put-off behavior, and now we're coming to the put-on behavior. And as I was reading, hopefully, you're, it's so tempting when we hear Bible to just kind of tune out like it's different words. But hopefully, you are hearing, whoa, that's hard. Whoa, that's, oh, compassion. Forgiving as Christ has forgiven me. What's it mean to admonish one another with songs? Not many of you sing to me very much. What's up with that, right? A few soloists here and there. I'm really looking forward to teaching that one. Um, So we hear this incredibly high standard. And and so the question that I want to ask tonight is before we list off, before we look at all these new, these next moral imperatives, why do you think Paul would stop first, and even though it's only a clause or two clauses, to remind readers of these spiritual privileges? I mean, 
if you think about it, and some of you perhaps heard preachers preach like this, or maybe you've been in churches that have this bent, but don't you think that that could kind of like, like demotivate them to living a holy life? I mean, isn't it like the opposite of the incentive? Wouldn't, wouldn't telling someone that you are already beloved and holy, wouldn't that kind of, could that possibly undermine the urgency to obey? Right? I mean, if you tell people that God has already chosen them and he's already consecrated them and he already loves them, I mean, like, what's the incentive to obey? It's like the kiosk owner telling the mall and the poor, unfortunate mall employee, right? Hey, I really want you to do really well at making the creepy eye contact stuff and shoving moisturizer on people and like jumping out behind bushes with like little chicken on sticks. But, you know, really, if you don't do well, it's okay. I'm going to pay you no matter what. So, so don't worry about it. Like what effect would that have on your heart? You're like... I'm going to Netflix and put on my headphones and like wait for the time to pass, right? That would, that would be that would be the temptation, right? Like I want you to try really hard to sell to them, but you know, even if you don't sell any moisturizer, that's okay. You're going to get paid the same amount. Right? If your performance has no impact on your paycheck, wouldn't that be like demotivating? I felt this tension just the other day in a conversation with uh, one of my children. Um, she had she had just been diso- disciplined for disobedience, and and I held her in my arms and I told her how much I loved her, and it was it was a sweet and it was a tender time. I think I trust it was a profitable time of of correction, and I was encouraging her that as she left room in a moment and had to face the same situation that she had struggled with before, I was encouraging her towards obedience. And as we got ready to stand up and, and to go back into the kitchen, I told her, I said, listen, daughter, right? You have to be kind to your sister. Your sister is more important than toys. And I want you to think really hard about how your words make her feel. But if you don't, you have to understand something. I will still love you. And you can see the look in her eyes. It, it changed, right? She was motivated to please dad. And she, I think she was going to go out and try to obey to please dad, right? Like I could, I, I, but, but I told her, I said, listen, if you fail again, if you fail 10,000 more times, I will still love you. And because I love you, I'm proud to be your father, even if you struggle. So I told her, you see what I mean? Like, as I emphasize that my love for my daughters is not in any way dependent upon her performance. And in fact, my pride in being her father is not connected to how well she obeys. Do you see how that could kind of feel like I'm de-incentivizing her obedience? I mean, I could have laid it on thick, right? Have you ever done this as a parent? And I've done this before. You are, so, I, you are so, you're disappointing me so much, right? Like you just lay it on thick, right? Don't, don't embarrass your father, right? Where we totally miss the heart, we go straight to the manipulation and completely miss the point. I mean, could we, we sometimes we hold out our love and our pride as a reward for obedience, and, and that is often easier, right? I know my daughter wants my approval. Why not pull on her heartstrings a little and get her to behave a little bit better? You see, the answer, the reason I don't want to do that is I'm not primarily concerned with how she behaves right now if that doesn't affect your heart. I want want to reach her heart. 
And as a father, I'm more concerned with clarifying my love for her as her dad than I am about manipulating her into good behavior. Like I could try to guilt her into it, but that's not my, that's not my desire. Here in verse 12, Paul is reminding the readers of the benefits of the gospel so that they would not so that so they would have the incentives right. He's and he's reminding them not to rob them of their incentives to be holy, but to do just the opposite. Paul believed that these glorious blessings that he reminds them of before he calls them to obey, that they don't de-incentivize obedience, but they actually incentivize obedience. Gospel blessings such as election and sanctification and adoption, they don't undercut our motives to obey. In fact, they undergird them. They don't undercut obedience, they undergird obedience. This is the point of grace. Uh, Hopefully this will clear up for you as we work through this. But we should understand it like this. It's precisely because you are God's chosen child that you should obey. It is because you've already been made holy that you should obey. And it is because that you are loved that you should obey. Not obey to earn approval or earn love. There are people, there are professing Christians who wrongly assume I've been saved, right? Have you heard this? Or perhaps you've had this attitude at times. I've had this attitude at times, right? I've been saved. I'm one of God's elect people. I don't need to be that concerned about my behavior. Right? Once saved, always saved. But this is a total misunderstanding. Rather, a perversion of grace. Because grace does not compel us to sin. Grace compels us to obey. Titus chapter 2 says it like this. Listen to these words carefully. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is Titus 2 verse 12. Did you hear that in there? Grace has appeared, and yes, it brings salvation. But not only does it bring salvation, but it trains us. Grace trains us to be godly. Grace is God's training mechanism to grow you in maturity. It's how He exercises us to grow in holiness and obedience by conditioning us by His grace. It's the same thing that Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians. He says it like this, For Christ's love compels us. I think that's the NIV. Or Christ's love, I think the SV says, Christ's love constrains us. Because we're convinced that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. For him who died and rose again on their behalf. Did you hear that? Christ's love compels us into obedience. It constrains us. It it, it binds us to His obedience. We are compelled, we are constrained, not by guilt, not by fear, not by a longing for approval that we're a little bit unsure if we're going to have on a bad day when you blow it big. But we're compelled by love. We're compelled by grace. The gospel itself 
trains us and equips us to obey. The God understanding and growing deeper in our understanding of the gospel helps us fight sin and it helps us obey no matter what the circumstance. And this is the main point tonight, that, that as you come, Christian, as you come to recognize the realities of God's grace, that especially the ones that we see here in verse 12, that, that you have been sovereignly chosen by God for salvation, not because you're good or because you're special, but because He loves you. And that you've been set apart and made holy for His purposes. And that you have been somehow made the object and the affection of His love. As that comes to grip your heart more and more, you're not going to use that as an excuse to sin. It will be your reason to obey. Do, do, you, do you know what I'm talking about? I want to obey because God loves me, not because it makes me, Him love me. That's the difference. You see how this fits? We grow in holiness the more we come to love His grace. Paradoxically, the more we come to believe that God loves us, not because we are good, but because of His sovereign choice, the more we will grow in holiness. Now, we may be used to some of these words because, maybe this is just me, but like if you grow up in church, you grow up around the Bible, you hear words like these in the Bible your whole life, right? The, wor- the words we have here, that you are chosen or that you're elect, holy, and then beloved. It, it can be tempting to, to, to kind of just let those roll off, but we want to think about them carefully. I think, I think Paul might have been using these words perhaps even to shock his readers, because these three descriptors were used in the Old Testament. They were reserved only to describe God's relationship with Israel. Perhaps you remember that from your Old Testament reading. They, they described the special status that Israel had in, in their relationship with God. And so Paul is perhaps kind of shocking them to remind them of the stunning glory of who they are in Christ. Friends, I mean, I was thinking about this today, trying to get this in my head, but if you could just for a moment, it's going to sound strange, but if you could just for a moment have the curtain peeled away and see how gloriously brilliant of a creature you are, I'm not a self-help guy, right? If you could see how glorious of a new creature you are, it would absolutely affect how you live. Right? You would grow into that maturity much more quickly when we understand the new creation that God has accomplished in Christ and the identity that we have. It, if we could see it, it would change and affect how we live. Paul is he's trying to awaken the Colossians to this daunting task of living this new life that they've been raised to. These are lofty calls. These are big commands, right? Patience. Did y'all see that? Patience is on the list. Who here is like, don't struggle with patience. Got that one covered, right? Like, that's like the one we joke about, right? They were called to be patient. We've been raised to this reality. And Paul is, is making this clear, and he does it by applying these three identifying qualities. Qualities that were once only true of Israel as God's chosen people, but now Paul applies them to all Christians. God's chosen people to 
the church. So before we look at each one of these descriptors in a little more detail, let me just go ahead and plant this question in your mind. Could it be that there's some ways that you've forgotten your new identity in Christ? I'm speaking, I'm speaking to Christians. Are, can you, are there perhaps some ways that you've forgotten your identity? That you may be struggling with an identity crisis. Living in some ways like the old creature that was a worldly creature versus a new creature in Christ. We'll be thinking about that as we take a few minutes to review some of the highlights of God's grace. So the first point, the first description we see here is number one, we are God's chosen ones. And so here, of course, the text says as God's chosen ones. Here we're speaking of the precious doctrine of election. It's a doctrine that is as biblical as David and Goliath, yet it is, seems to have fallen into disrepute among some. Literally, if we were to translate it, we could say the elect, the elect of God. Literally, you are, you have been, you are the elect persons of God. Electoi, whatever, right? It's plural. It's like you are the elect ones of God, which means that we are chosen and selected by God. Now, I know that there is quite a bit of confusion about this term, and so I want to try to go back to the Old Testament and examine one of the key passages that helps us understand the roots of election in the Bible. And since I really want you to turn there, so flip to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and I hope this is helpful. Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we'll look at verse 7. All right, seven and eight. Listen, listen to God's word. Okay, so we're talking. God's, God's talking through Moses about the nation of Israel. It was not because that you were more in number than any other people that the Lord listened to this phrase, set His love on you, and chose you. Same word. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery and from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So I think this is a really helpful place to think about election because in Deuteronomy, Moses is giving us explicit insight into God's motive for choosing Israel. Did y'all see that? He's clarifying, he's making a big deal out of God's motive for electing or choosing Israel as his special chosen people. The text literally says, it is not because of your numbers, which we can understand. It means it is not because you're strong, it's not because you're pretty, it's not because you're powerful, you are not the select nation of the world on your own merit. In fact, their weakness was attractive to God. Why do you think that would be? The weaker they are, the stronger he looks because the stronger he is, right? Why does God choose them? What does the text say God chose them for? Because of love. Because of love. He set his love upon them. It also says that he was keeping his covenant, his promise to Abraham. Israel's status as God's chosen people depended not on their goodness, not on their good decisions. I mean, in fact, think about it. 
Israel spent like most of its history trying to get rid of God. I mean, we just read the story of the golden calf to our kids the other day. Have you stopped and thought about how crazy that is? I mean, Moses is on the mountain. There's like thunder and clouds. Like they can see the clouds and they're like, let's build a golden calf, right? Like it was not because of Israel's good qualities that God chose them. It's because God loves them. He loved them. He set, he chose to set his love on them. And since he loved them, he redeemed them out of Israel. Brothers and sisters, I would plead with you tonight. Do not let your questions or your uncertainties about the doctrine of election and how it works out philosophically and how it fits in all the pieces, don't let your questions cause you to miss the big point. God has chosen to love you. And it is not because you are good. It's not because you make good decisions. It's not because you are better than other people. He has chosen to love you, not because of your goodness, but because of his love. Do you see how much confidence that should give us when we get that? God's love is completely detached from your performance. It is completely detached from your goodness and completely detached from your wisdom. And because of that, Romans 8.33 says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, right? It's, it's, it is part of your foundational confidence that God isn't going to bail on you because he has elected you. The Bible teaches that election and predestination are according to God's purposes and according to his love. And we don't have to get into the nitty gritties to agree on that, right? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, listen carefully, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. How did he predestine and elect? According to his purpose. God has elected us because he loves us and he loves us. Why? That's the purpose of his will. He loves us because he decided to do that. And that should cause us to marvel. And I believe that God does this without minimizing or without violating the role of our decisions and our actions. Man's freedom is not an obstacle to God for accomplishing his purposes. The Bible is like one massive chronicle about how God works in spite of man, right? Man is constantly screwing up the plan, and God's like, I can solve this in another way. I'll make a donkey talk. That guy probably felt really good, didn't he, right? But like, what, what, who can frustrate God's purposes, right? I find Proverbs nineteen twenty one here really helpful in, in this question of, of how does election fit with man's free will and our decisions as humans. Listen carefully. You've heard this before. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. They can both exist, right? And they do. I would plead with you tonight. Do not wait to understand. Do not wait until you understand all the details or the ins and outs of election before you delight in it. 
Don't spend your time trying to persuade someone that they're wrong or right, or don't focus all the time on just like winning an argument and then miss delighting in it. You may not understand, you may not even like the doctrine of election right now, but you know what? God does. He did not choose to place his love on you unwillingly or reluctantly. He wanted to do it. It was according to his own good purpose. And child of God, he delights to save you. He delights to place his love on you. And this should amaze us. Nothing good that we have done. We all agree on that, right? Nothing good that we have done. And he has placed his love upon us. Again, we can go back to another place in Deuteronomy to see this pattern of delight in election. It's about God's pleasure. It says, Yet the Lord set in this is Deuteronomy 10, yet the Lord set in his heart, or he set his heart in love on your fathers, and chose their offspring after them, that you should be above all peoples as you are this day. The text says that when God elected Israel, what he was doing was setting his heart in love upon them. Is that not a beautiful phrase? He set his heart in He fell in love with Israel. Not because they were lovely, because he chose to love them. That should bring us total joy and total security. And we don't have to understand it all because he does. The second Timothy one verse nine says this The Lord saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. And we can all agree on that. Election is a precious doctrine because it cements God's unconditional love for us. And if I could also note, it has one other very important effect. It crushes human pride. I mean, it demolishes human pride. More than any other doctrine, the doctrine of election crushes human pride and then exalts God as the one who saves and the one who grants eternal privileges and holiness upon us sinners. So let's marvel before the Lord. That brings us to our next descriptor. Because of Jesus, we have been, well, we are chosen in him, but we have been set apart and made holy. The word holy, right? You see this here. Oh, not in Deuteronomy. Let's flip back. We are holy, chosen ones, holy. The word means to be set apart, that because of God's election, believers, just like Israel, have been set apart or even separated from the world. That God chose believers out of the mainstream and then he drew them to himself. They then have been united with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Right? We've talked about that. And now, since we've been raised with Christ, we must be different than the world. This concept of separation and, and, and holiness, it explains so much of the Old Testament. If you've read Leviticus, anyone done a Bible reading plan this year and read Leviticus and you're wondering, like, what's the problem with like picking up a, a, a carcass of a lion, right? Or, or touching such and such or eating such and such food, right? Well, when we understand the importance of how cleanliness and holiness go together in the Old Testament, then we, we can understand Israel was, as a special nation, was distinguished from the world, not only with their moral laws, right? They, they had moral laws the other, world, the other nations didn't, but also with dietary laws and, and with the right of circumcision. 
And and the priests, even within the even within Israel, were distinguished from the common people by their clothing or by their title. They had different marriage rules and and also and different washings in this. You see, God's people have been called and set apart for His purposes, and that is to worship. Right? We see that in the Old Testament pattern. Let my people go so they can go out and worship me. And that's what we have been called to. And he, he cleanses us for this task because God cannot be near uncleanliness and He can't be near unholiness. And this is what He did for Israel. If you read through Leviticus, as you're reading all these different uh, ceremonial laws and all this strange stuff that, that seems so uh, awkward to our modern ears, right? You will notice the repeated refrain, repeated refrain where, where the Lord says, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I clean you. I make you holy. God does it. This teaches us holiness comes from God. Is given to us. In Christ, we who were guilty and dirty and stained have been set apart. We have been cleansed and we have been made holy, set apart for God's purposes, the purpose of worship. Do you see how this helps us obey? This propels us to obey? Do you see how this sets us up for obeying the coming commands on patience and and, and tenderness and compassion? God has set us apart for a task, to know Him and to delight in Him. And we need to grow into and live in that identity. As we've said it before, this is who you are. Now go be who you are. Live in that new identity. One final point here, we see that we are loved by God. We're loved by God. We've already spoken of the love of God in election. How He has placed His love, He has set His affection on us, not because we're lovely, but because He loves us. We are objects of God's love, but I want to meditate on that just for a few, two minutes or so. What does it mean that God loves us? Is this not the most basic part of the Christian faith, that God loves us? It means that God is wholly committed to your welfare doesn't it? If God loves you, He is entirely committed to your welfare. His joy is wrapped up in your welfare. His joy is wrapped up in your welfare and He actually finds joy in giving to you. That's what it means to love, right? He he desires and He delights in us and His delight reaches its highest form only when He can be with us. When he, when he can have unbroken fellowship with us. That's what it means for Him to love you. He can't love us and not want to be with us. He loves us and His joy is reaching its highest form when He is in fellowship with us. That's why He pursues. That's why He cleanses. That's why if you read, anybody reading Ezekiel and CBR? All right, okay. So just the... Uh, just the other day, we're reading about all this, these measurements about the temple, right? And how long it is and how wide it is and how square it is and all this stuff. And it's just a reminder. It is a big deal for humans to interact with God. It is a big deal. There's a lot of blood involved. There's a lot of special washing involved because God is different than us. And He longs to be with us because He's placed His love on us. And so His fellowship is complete when, we, when He is with us. 
sin in our life is not a trifle deal. He draws near to us. The temple reminds us of what a big deal that is. And as we put off sin, we are drawing near to God. What a wonderful reminder. His love is not stagnant. It is not inactive. It is not distant, but rather it is active and close and creative. That is the nature of love. It's not some vague, diffused goodwill that he has kind of towards everybody in in general or nobody in particular. It's not that at all. It is strategic and it is active and it is personal. Brother and sister in Christ, you are loved by God. He is more committed to your welfare than you're committed to your welfare. And guess what? You love you a lot and he loves you more. Is that not amazing to think about? We can be confident that God will exercise his love towards us in all of his providences. There's no scenario in your life that is not that is outside of God's love for you. He is exercising his goodwill and his love towards you. And of course, we must remember that not only has God committed himself to our welfare, but he has actually identified himself with our welfare. A loving husband, I could not be unaffected if I knew that my wife was in some sort of distress. Right? If I knew that and was like, eh, right, that would dim, that would demonstrate that there's no love in the relationship. That's that does not work. J.R. Packer says it like this. He says, We know that those who truly love are only happy when those whom they love are truly happy also. So it is with God. Did you catch that? We know that those who truly love are only happy when those that they love are also happy. And so it is with God. You are, you've heard it, you've heard it say a parent can only be as happy as their happiest child, right? Like, I don't entirely agree with, but, but it's the same, it's the same dynamic. You are wrapped up in someone else's welfare and no one has done this more than God. God has not only set his love upon us, but he has voluntarily bound us up and his final happiness in his own. He has bound up his final happiness in ours. That's why the scriptures say greater love has no, has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. He gave up his happiness that we might find ours. And as we found ours, he found his So this helps us understand that we now love because he, what church, first loved us. And we love, if we love him, we will do what? We will keep his commandments. You see how this sets us up for all the imperatives that are coming, all the commands? This love, this compels us to obey. Not because we're afraid of God. We fear him and keep his commands. Because perfect love casts out all fear. But we obey because we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Let me close this in prayer. Father, I pray that you would bring clarity where I am unclear. Lord, that you would comfort us with these precious doctrines. Would you give us grace to keep your commands as we leave this place tonight. And help us to trust you every time we fail. In your name. Amen.